Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, and we are ready to continue wearing out the pages on the letter to the Hebrews with increment 49 today. Tois Adelphois Mu. My brothers and sisters, we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 2, verse verses 12 and 13, and also to Psalm 22, another psalm regarding completion. And the date, the day, is today. So while it is today, let's listen, be be attentive to what the Spirit is saying, for he is speaking now through the Scriptures to the churches. We thank God for that. And so, Father, we do thank you that you are a very present help in time of need, that your spirit is closer to us than our very breath. And we thank you that you have sent to us in answer to your son's petition, the spirit of truth who guides us into all the truth, Grant us a hunger for that truth, Father. In fact, we have a desperate requirement for it as we travel through this age, this evil age. So do not hide your counsel from us, but reveal it in your Son and by your Spirit today as we continue in this wonderful document which was produced by the breath of the Spirit courtesy of your grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity, and we commit ourselves, our souls to you, a faithful creator. We entrust our spirit to you for the purpose of receiving your word and walking in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We have asked and answered, at least in part, a twofold question for intelligence. The question, why did the Son need to be perfected and why through suffering? The answer, in short, the Son's perfection means perfect solidarity with all of humankind. And this was achieved through the appropriate suffering of the death of the cross by which the monstrous obstacle to that union, to that solidarity, was removed, that being sin. The question for reflection always follows a question for intelligence. The question for reflection is now before us. Is that answer correct? Is it so? In finding the answer to the question for intelligence, we have come to see Jesus, the founder of salvation, And we see him as the founder of salvation and as the sanctifier. And we see ourselves as the saved, that is, the sanctified by him and in him. The son had to be perfected in order for God to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And it was fitting for God, the creator and redeemer of all things, therefore, to make his son, the founder of salvation, perfect through redemptive sufferings. Sufferings that would redeem those many sons and daughters from sin and deliver them from the evil one. Who had the power over death and who had kept them enslaved to the fear of death over the course of their entire lives. To put away sin and to destroy the devil, the one who had leverage over death, required a suffering that could only be endured by a divine human being. Though Hebrews 2.10 says many sons, it means and intends both sons and daughters. 
Other passages bear this out. Passages like Isaiah 43.6 and 49.22. Isaiah 60 verse 4, 2 Corinthians 6.18. The great intention of the creator has always been the glorification of his creation. Or what we might even say, the completion of his creation in glory. And with that, the glorification of all of humanity, of many sons and daughters. It can be said that creation was not finished, in fact. Creation was not finished, in fact, until the suffering of the founder of salvation was completed. Now, this puts some omnipotent muscle behind the word tetelestai that was heard by the beloved disciple from lips, the lips of Jesus Christ and him crucified, or the Aramaic equivalent of tetelestai, heard by the ideal witness, the one who's called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in John 19.30. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, which is what we're concerned with generally right now, as we wear out the pages of this letter. Hebrews 2.10, For in the bringing of many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that he... That, be, that being God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Another word for perfect is complete through suffering. Verse 11, for both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. Because of which he, that's Jesus, the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, that is, the sanctified, the many sons and daughters, not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, his siblings, saying in verse 12, I will proclaim your name, Jesus speaking to the Father, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, that's ecclesia, and ultimately this means the great congregation, I will sing hymns to you. That's Jesus speaking to the Father. And that's taken from Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. Very important that we know this. And that's the Septuagint or the Greek version that the Hebrews writer chooses. That's from Psalm twenty-one, twenty-three, And again, I will put my trust in him, verse 13. And again, I, this is Jesus speaking, will put my trust in him. That's God, the Father. And that's taken from the Greek text of Isaiah eight seventeen, And there's a comparison there to Isaiah 12.2, which also speaks of trusting in God. And with a nod to, or at least a gesture toward, 2 Samuel 22.3. And again, notice he says, and again, and again. This is a rhetorical strategy in which he uses the words kai palin in order to stack scripture on scripture. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. That is taken from Isaiah 8.18, from the Greek version of it, or the Septuagint. The quotation of Psalm 22. Now, we paid great attention to the Psalms and fanned out from the quotation of the Psalms to show the larger context. For example, in Psalm 44 of the Septuagint, which is 45 in your English translation, 
which was quoted in Hebrews 1, 8 to 9, we noted the importance of the entirety of that psalm, as well as the quotation that he selects from it. We also did the same thing more recently with Psalm 8, which he quoted and commented upon in Psalm 2, 5 through 9, especially Psalm 2, 6b through 8a. Both Psalm 8 and Psalm 45, or the Septuagint of 44, are introduced with the words regarding completion, or estotelos, which is to the end, or for the end, or better, as the NETS translation puts it, regarding completion. So the quotation of Psalm 22, Septuagint Psalm 21, makes us think more seriously, and I think you'll see this. It makes us think more seriously about the chorus theu understanding of Hebrews 2.9. That is, that Jesus, quote, far from God, tasted death for everyone. To me, that sense at least, if not that translation, is probably suitable. Jesus, far from God, tasted death for everyone, was an experience by which sin was put away. And death was once and for all defeated, and therefore the power of the one who used death to create fear was destroyed. God considered it fitting, suitable, appropriate, and we saw before, in fact, necessary. That the founder of salvation, we see Jesus as the founder of salvation. God considered it fitting. God who created everything, who brought everything into being, and everything into being comes back to him. That God considered fitting that the founder of salvation, that's the salvation of everything that God brought into being, be perfected through suffering. And that suffering is the experience of death for every human being. Through this suffering, the Son, in whom God has spoken with definitive finality in these last days, the Son has come into perfect solidarity with all human beings. Though I haven't really billed it as such, this truth is the strongest statement of universal salvation in the Bible. The unity and solidarity of the Son of God with all of humanity, of the founder of salvation with all those for whom he tasted death, who are brought into union with him. The ultimate goal of God is that all things would be comprised of his Son. All things would be summed up in his son. Through suffering outside the gate, that is outside the gate of old Jerusalem, through the endurance of the cross, Jesus became the sanctifier of all of those for whom he experienced death. Death is that unspeakable remuneration or paycheck paid out by sin. In the Christ event, as it's called, and I think rightly so, the Christ event involves many facets, his incarnation, his passion, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension and exaltation, enthronement and coronation. In that Christ event, the Father glorified the Son, and the Son glorified the Father. In the Christ event, the Son sanctified himself for the sake of all for whom he died. John seventeen nineteen. 
that he may be their sanctifier. And so that the sanctified and the sanctifier may all be of one entity. Sharing the glory that the father and the son enjoyed from eternity. Now the PT, the pastor theologian, quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. You'll find it right there in your English Bibles, although it's the Greek text or, that he uses, possibly the Septuagint, twenty-one, twenty-three. I want to keep making that clear. The PT quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two in Hebrews two, twelve, in such a way as to show that it is spoken by Jesus. It is a word spoken by Jesus. The Holy One spoke using David's tongue. His word was in David's mouth, the author of this psalm. And so we want to see that this is a word spoken by Jesus. He speaks to God, his Father, and says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, Ecclesia, I will sing hymns to you. The Psalms of David in Psalm 22, LXX 21. The Psalms of David speak of the son of David. That is, David's greater descendant. Jesus Christ, who is the son of David according to the flesh... According to human genealogy, the son of God, whom God raised from the dead, Romans 1, 3, and 4. It is ultimately, therefore, Jesus of which the Psalms speak, and ultimately Jesus in whom the psalmist speaks, and who speaks in the psalmist in many cases. So it is ultimately Jesus and not David who speaks in Psalm 22, 22, the Greek text 21, 23, just as it is ultimately Jesus, the son of David, according to the flesh, the descendant of David, according to human lineage, Jesus, who cried with a loud cry in Psalm 22, one, which is again the Septuagint 21 one. We've seen the benefit that derives from attentiveness to the context of the quotations of and allusions to the scriptures that appear in the New Testament, and specifically those quotations and allusions in Hebrews. I can't overestimate the importance of looking at the context from which the quotations are taken. And I've only done a kind of a basic and elementary fanning out of that context in our study. I'm trying to stay lean enough to the text so as not to go on for years and years in this study for too long. But at the same time, I don't want to just blow through this study without bringing in these, the context. Such is the case with the quotation of Psalm 22.22 in Hebrews 2.12. Psalm 22.1 in your English Bibles begins with the famous cry of dereliction or abandonment or forsakenness. And that is reported to have been cried by Jesus in the Aramaic language. Because it says at about three in the afternoon on the day of his crucifixion, with a loud voice, Jesus, while enduring the cross, cried out, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. That's recorded in Matthew twenty-seven sixteen and in Mark fifteen thirty-four. So let it be noted. That Psalm 22, Septuagint 21, like the Septuagint of Psalm 44, quoted in Hebrews 1, 8 to 9, 
and Psalm 8, quoted in Hebrews 2, 6a to 8b, or 6b to 8a, in the Greek text, is introduced with the words that the New English translation of the Septuagint, a very excellent translation produced in 2007, I have it noted in my footnotes, the NETS, not to be confused with the NET, another excellent translation, the New English translation. The NETS translates regarding completion as a phrase that opens this psalm, as well as Psalm 8 and Psalm 45. Regarding completion. Aista telos. Thanks to this rendering by the NETS, we have what to me is a surprising interpretive insight to the entire homily that we call Hebrews. Because Hebrews is, like those Psalms, regarding completion. It's about completion. It's about perfection. And all the words that hover around the somantic domain of the word tetelestai, or teleao, or telos, are found in Hebrews. Hebrews is regarding completion. If you wanted to do another title than the title Hebrews, you could say an epistle or a homily regarding completion. It is specifically the completion or perfection of God's Son through suffering and also the perfecting or the completion of of the children whom God gave to him. It's a perfection or completion that is that also involves suffering, both on the part of the sanctifier and the sanctified, on the part of the unique son and a part, on a part of the many sons and daughters who are called into glory by the Father and led into glory by the founder of salvation, Jesus himself. It involves suffering. Listen carefully. Suffering is bearable if we know it has a purpose. Do you know that your suffering has a purpose? It does. If we know that it's necessary to our practical completion as a people who glorify God through it and who become companions of God's Messiah through it, through suffering. Many times, and this has become true and sadly true, in the present time in our nation's history and in world history. Many times people despair in suffering. And they even become suicidal in it. Some even take their lives in that suffering. Not because of the suffering per se, the suffering itself, but because they see no purpose in it. And they see no end to it. We who are woke, that is, we who have been awakened to see Jesus, ought to see both the purpose and the end to suffering. We see both the purpose and the end to suffering. We can be a people who deliver comfort to the sufferers. We can be a people who through prayer lift sufferers because the one to whom we pray is our glory and the lifter of our heads. It bears repeating, as all the truth does, but it bears repeating that the PT has selected certain psalms for his discourse that regard completion, that are about not only the end or the eschatological 
consummation and the soteriological consummation and culmination of all things in salvation. It bears repeating that he has selected psalms that are called regarding completion, especially given that the theme of his homily, and Hebrews is a homily, is precisely the completion that the Son as sanctifier entered through suffering. And it's about the completion of the sanctified in solidarity with him. I cannot adequately stress the importance of this for the interpretation of Hebrews in toto, the entirety of Hebrews as a single entity. Nor can I overstate its importance for us, the recipients of this homily in the 21st century. The importance of this for 21st century students of the epistle to the Hebrews. God is concerned with your completion, with our completion. This evil age is our finishing school. It is the school of Christ to whom we come to learn of him. For his yoke is easy, his burden, his academic burden is light. And we experience a light affliction for a moment in the process of that schooling with a view to an eternal weight of glory. God is concerned with our completion, which is our conformity into the image of his son. Through this conformity, We begin to resemble the son. We're even called sons of God. Sons and daughters of God. Though this conformity will be accomplished. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. God considers it to be of great importance. That this completion begin and in fact be demonstrated in some meaningful measure in those whom he has awakened to faith, the real woke people. I said the real woke people in this present age, in this evil age, in this time to use Mordecai's often used phrase, the uncle of Esther for such a time as this. Esther 4.14. God wants to demonstrate increment by increment the transformation of a people into the image of his son right in the midst of an evil age in which everything seems to be against such a thing. After the introduction of the theme regarding completion, the NETS version of the psalm then translates the subtitle in the Septuagint of Psalm 21, which is, again, your English Bible has it in 22. Don't be confused. The NETS then translates the subtitle as this curious phrase, over the support at dawn. Strange. Over the support at dawn. At dawn, a support. And then it says, a psalm pertaining to David. So the whole title reads, regarding completion, over the support at dawn, a psalm pertaining to Dawid, as they spell it. Dawid, D-A-U-I-D, which comes down to us, D-A-V-I-D, David. Now, when I think of the curious phrase, over the support of dawn, as a kind of subtitle for this psalm, I can't help thinking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as recorded in Matthew, because it says it was at early dawn on the first day of the week following the crucifixion and death 
of Jesus that, quote, Mary of Magdala and the other Mary, possibly Mary of Bethany, came to the tomb where Jesus had been buried only to be shaken all of a sudden by a sudden earth shock, an earthquake, and to see an angel descend from heaven. Now remember, this is just before the breaking of dawn while it's still dark, and the last of the darkness is ready to be dispelled by light. On their arrival, an earthquake And then they saw an angel descend from heaven and roll away the giant stone disc that had sealed Jesus' tomb. And then the angel simply casually sat upon that disc. This all happened at the break of dawn. He then said to those women, don't be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. (laughs) He's not here. For he has risen just as he said he would. Matthew 28, 1 to 6. Do you feel the support of dawn? I do. The support at dawn spoken in Psalm 22, 1. Psalm 21 of the Septuagint, one, is the announcement of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after his crucifixion and death. The announcement by an angel that came before the dawn's early light. On the first day of the week, which was in fact the first day of a new creation. The appearance of the angel was like lightning, says Matthew. And his clothing was glistening like snow in the sunlight. It must have been terribly striking against that last bit of darkness just before the dawn of the day. In fact, for fear of this angel, the guards, probably some elite Guards who were charged with guarding the tomb were, quote, visibly shaken and became as dead men. Matthew 28, 4. The appearance of one angel makes a whole cadre of elite soldiers become like dead men. Makes you put in perspective the kind of power that we admire. And this makes me also think of the coming dawn in Romans 13, 11 to 14. For the scripture says the day is at hand. The night is almost over. It's almost over. Our suffering is almost over. The birth pangs of that glorious new creation are almost over. The day is at hand. The dawn is about to break. So put off from yourselves the deeds done in darkness and put on the armor of light. And most of all, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That is, stop making provision for you to exalt your flesh above others, to cancel others, to judge others, to malign others in order to push yourself forward. That's the flesh. That's the kind of self-exaltation that always ends in debasement and in debasement. That Psalm 22 then further pertains to David or David. Ultimately and eschatologically means that it pertains most importantly and ultimately as all the Psalms and prophets and writings do, to Jesus, the son of David, the son or descendant of David, according to the flesh, Romans 1.3. The one who is declared also to have been the son of God all along, the divine son of God, 
through being raised from the dead, according to Paul's gospel, Romans 1, 4, 2 Timothy 2, 8. Remember, Jesus Christ of the seed of David raised from the dead, according to my gospel. Paul wrote to Timothy, the gospel of God all about his son and a gospel all about the son's completion and the completion of creation in him. Now the cry, God, my God, attend to me. Why did you abandon me? That's how it comes forth in the Septuagint translation. My God, God, my God, attend to me. Why did you abandon me? Now the son trusted that the father would attend to him, and he did. The proof of God attending to the abandoned one is called resurrection from the dead. The cry called the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment is immediately followed by the phrase in the Greek text, far away from my salvation. Please notice that far away from my salvation. That's the experience of Jesus being crucified. Far away, he said, from my salvation. Makran, apa tes soterias mu. Don't grade me on pronunciation if you're a Greek scholar. In the Greek text of Psalm 22, Septuagint 21, from which the PT quotes in Hebrews 2.12, the second part of that cry is, far from my salvation are the words of my transgression. This seems to indicate that while being made to be sin, the sinless one, the son, was far from salvation. He had to go far from salvation to make you near to salvation and to make me saved and you saved. As such, he was far from God, who is salvation. Far from experiencing salvation, therefore, Jesus was enduring at that moment the wages of all the sins of all the world in order to expiate them. And that means put them away. Do away with them. Make them not to be. So a real feel experience of David. There's a thing called real feel. The temperature may be 80, but the real feel is 84. You really feel 84 even though the temperature is 80. David really felt a kind of God forsakenness. We all do. It's a real feel. David's real feel experience in his own life was only a faint forecast of the incomprehensible experience of God forsakenness that his royal descendant would endure the Messiah King, Jesus. What Jesus would undergo as he endured the cross. Quite a phrase from Hebrews 12 too. This is why I say that the translation of Hebrews 2.9 that reads, far from God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Well, it seems more plausible now since again, the psalm that the writer refers to is this psalm, which begins with the cry of abandonment. So again, it's profitable to consider the entirety of the psalms from which the Hebrews writer extracts quotations. Fitting to the notion of the founder, Archegon, of salvation, being completed through suffering, and at the same time, appropriate to the idea that the son's perfection means 
solidarity or unity or union with all of humanity is the trajectory of Psalm 22. In other words, the whole trajectory of that psalm, the Septuagint Psalm 21, reveals that whole purpose in Hebrews. In fact, in all the scripture. The psalm begins with a cry uttered from God-forsakenness. A cry uttered somewhere far from salvation. Somewhere far from anything that is essential goodness. The psalm moves, therefore, from there, the psalm moves the sufferer to the midst of a congregation of redeemed where the sufferer proclaims the name of God to his brothers and sisters and sings hymns to God. This is post-resurrection. The psalm ends, if you read 22, 27 to 31, the psalm ends on a note of stark universalism with all the nations of the world worshiping the Lord and with a generation that was not yet born when this was written, being portrayed as proclaiming the finished work of God in his messianic king. That brings us right to today, right now, right here today. It says, they will speak of his righteousness, what he has done. The righteousness of God is what he has done. It's not through righteous deeds, which we have done, but according to his mercy, which is the righteousness that God has done, that he saved us. Sometimes I think the last people to report the gospel are those who call themselves Christians. Because they don't understand this truth. Today, Psalm 22:31, which is Psalm 22:32 in the Greek text, is being fulfilled in your hearing as you hear this message. Because the Lord has acted, says Psalm 22:31, the Septuagint 22:32. His vertical action has resulted in universal redemption and has issued in the universal worship of Jesus, the suffering and delivered redeemer, the king, a king whom God pronounces also to be a priest forever after the order of a mysterious figure named Melchizedek who came out to meet Abraham in the Valley of the Kings. As we will see later on, as the PT's exposition of Psalm 110.4 comes forth, Septuagint 109.4, in connection with an ingenious, spirit-breathed exegesis of Genesis 14.17 to 20. That's down the road. Psalm 22, Septuagint 21, is a monumentally significant psalm that moves from the incomprehensible suffering of the Son of God to his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation. It reveals the church, the Greek word ekklesias, as the prolepsis or as a preview of the conversion of the nations and as a preview of the resurrection of all of humanity in order to come and worship God, the true God, the God of salvation. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, 27, Septuagint 21, 28. It is a royal psalm, a psalm about the messianic king, the king who is Messiah. It deals with the deliverance of the messianic king, 
who was plunged into God-forsakenness for us. It deals with the deliverance of the messianic king, the founder of salvation, which becomes the salvation of the nations. Because the one who sanctifies was far from salvation. The nations are brought near by his blood in Ephesians 2.13. And they become the sanctified. In keeping with the rhetorical method that this writer deploys, he uses the and again formula. Kai, K-A-I, P-A-L-I-N, Kai, Palin, and again. He's already used it in Hebrews 1.5 and 1.6. He'll use it again in 4.5 and 4.7 and 10.30, for example. That's a formula, Kaipalin formula, the and again formula. It's used to stack scripture references as he builds his overall argument and as he builds his word of exhortation, his powerful word of encouragement for the 21st century reader of Hebrews, as well as the first century readers. After the quotation of the Greek text, Psalm 21:23, as a word spoken by Jesus, he says, and again. This time he quotes Jesus again as the speaker and interprets Jesus to be the speaker in Isaiah 8:17, And it is Jesus, therefore, who says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus, the son, puts his trust in the father. Now, if you don't listen to this next paragraph, you're going to miss one of the most important insights that could ever come forth in the 21st century. I'm not bragging, and this ain't bragging. It's just factual that this insight is important for right now. Jesus put his trust in God, his father. And it is because Jesus trusted that God the Father would save him from the death into which he was plunged in order to experience death for everyone. He knew that he had to experience death for everyone and he trusted God to deliver him from that death after he had experienced it for everyone. Because he trusts, listen, don't lose me now. Because he trusted the father to do this, he could predict that he would once again proclaim his father's name to his brothers as he'd done so faithfully in the days of his flesh. Jesus trusted his father even as he was enduring the death of the cross. This is the faith, listen, listen. This is the faith that saves us. This is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And you can say that about yourselves. This is the faithfulness of the Son of God in and by which we live. We live by the faithfulness of the Son of God because of the faithfulness of the Son of God. The faithfulness of the Son of God in and by which we have eternal life. Even as we live our lives in these present yet to be transconfigured bodies. Jesus trusted God. Listen, listen. 
He that has an ear, she that has an ear, let him or her hear. Jesus trusted God for his own salvation from death. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. He trusted God for your salvation, for my salvation, for our salvation. Jesus trusted God for our salvation. Jesus trusted God. You and I are saved. It's a hard one to hear here because you know what it's going to do? Cancel your boasting. Cancel your pride. Cancel your self-righteousness and mine. It cancels mine. That's for sure. Listen carefully. You and I are saved not because we trusted God or even because we have trusted Jesus. We are saved because Jesus trusted in God as he endured the cross. Like Abraham, as we'll learn in Hebrews 11, around 17, Jesus put his faith in God for resurrection, for his own and for yours and mine. So here's my testimony today. I'm going to give my testimony. I say, I am saved, I am justified, I am sanctified because of Jesus Christ's faithful trust in his Father and because of Jesus' obedience to the Father that took him to the death of the cross and through it. Took him to resurrection and to exaltation, and enthronement, and coronation at the right of his majesty, our Father and his. In the unimaginably highest height of heaven. It's my testimony. I'm saved because Jesus trusted the Father for my salvation. You know what just happened? My soul rested. My soul rests. My soul has found rest in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. My soul doesn't worry about the depth or the height, the breadth or the width of my own faith, or whether my faith fails or succeeds. The faith he's given me is a gift. It's a deep and abiding faith, and it's a gift from him. I'm saved by his faith. My soul rests. Now, we may live our lives now in perfect trust. We may trust in the Lord with all of our hearts now. We may live our lives in perfect trust that Jesus has secured our eternal redemption. And you can look at your parents who you worry about, your grandchildren whom you worry about, your children whom you worry about, your friends whom you worry about, and know that Jesus Christ's trust in God has secured their redemption too. And nobody should ever live with the false idea and the idolatrous and blasphemous fake news in their mind that their relative has gone to hell because some ignorant, ignoramus, reverend preacher told them that. Now, we can trust in God with all of our hearts. We've been saved by grace and through Jesus' trustful faithfulness and not through our faith. That gives me faith. That makes me trust. Salvation is the gift of God. The gift excludes all 
boasting by the flesh. We have been saved by grace and through Jesus' trustful faithfulness and not through our faith or by our faith. The gift of God excludes all boasting of the flesh. God doesn't cancel any human being. The only people who cancel other human beings are people who consider themselves holier than God and certainly holier than thou. God doesn't cancel any human being. He cancels all humans boasting. He cancels all human boasting, but no human being. The only boasting he doesn't cancel is boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our boasting now is in the Lord. We are the circumcision, said Paul, who serve by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus, that's the Lord, and who put zero confidence in the flesh. That is, zero confidence in any human qualifications or achievements, including our own personal act of believing. Believing is something we do because God evokes faith in us. Believing, we get to experience the life of the age to come rather than perishing in the present evil age. I'll say that again. Believing, we get to experience the life of the age to come, even now in some measure, rather than perishing in the present evil age, partly because we don't understand the purpose of suffering and that there's an end to it. Believing is something we do because God evokes evokes or ignites faith in us. Believing, we get to experience the joy and peace of the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of God that is coming and that has, in some measure, already come, though not yet completely. If you put Romans 15, 13 together with Romans 14, 17, you'll get a little bit of a better picture of what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So for something to do sometime, read Psalm 22. It's like reading the entirety of the scriptural narrative all at once. It begins with God creating the heavens. You say, wait a minute, what? I said it begins with God creating the heavens and the earth through the experience of God forsakenness by the son of David. That's how the new creation came into being. It moves carefully through a graphic depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus through to his resurrection and presence in the church where he proclaims even now the name of his father. He proclaims it in his person and with his word. From the presence of the risen king in the midst of the church Psalm 22 and the spirit-breathed psalmist moves to the scene of universal worship, universal worship of the true God by all the nations. The movement of Psalm 22 is like the movement of the entirety of Scripture, ending with the restoration of all things. The making new of all things in the heavens and earth. And it is all brought about through Jesus who tasted death for everyone while he was far from salvation. Far from his own salvation. Far from the God of salvation.
It's all brought about far away from God through Jesus hanging on a cursed tree. In the closing verses of Psalm 22, 21 in the Septuagint, we are told of his offspring, that is, the children whom God gave to him. The picture is of them serving him. The last verse brings us right here, right now, today. It says they will announce his righteousness to a people to be born. His righteousness means what he has done. That's what Psalm 2231 says. What a revelation. Psalm 2232, Septuagint. His righteousness is what he has done. What God has done in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I will speak of his righteousness. What he has done. All day long. All while it is called. Today. Amen.